My name is Darren, and I, too, am one of the shepherds on staff. It was fun. Uh, the, earlier, we were talking about this text, and, uh, and somebody said, wow, we're getting the story of Joseph. That's really fun. And I was like, well, fun for us, maybe. Not necessarily fun for him, right? He might argue. Uh, if you're new to us, or for those of you who are visiting, we've been in an ongoing study in the book of Genesis, and now, as we come to Genesis 37, uh, we've got about, you know, 14 chapters or so until we'll be at the end of the book. That's, uh, that's gonna take us a few weeks to get there, but, you know, the end is in sight. So for those of you who are like, when are we gonna finish with Genesis? Hey, we're almost there. This morning, we begin the story of Joseph, which is, uh, it's like one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's exciting. It's kind of got all the makings of a, you know, lifetime TV movie starring Meredith Baxter Burney or whatever. You've got uh, betrayal and intrigue and murder plots and all these other things. I mean, it's one of those stories that people resonate with because there's so many moving pieces. We've got drama and redemption by the time we get to the end. But obviously along the way, there's grief and false accusation and false imprisonment and interpretation of dreams and all these things. So it's a story that people remember well. What we don't want to miss as we dive into Genesis 37 is that it's the beginning of the conclusion of a, of a prophecy that God made to Abram. If you remember our ongoing study together, for those of you who are here, all the way back in Genesis 15, when God is affirming his covenant with Abram, before his name was even changed, you'll remember that in Genesis 15, God had said to him, hey, there's a day coming when your descendants will sojourn in a land that doesn't belong to them. I, don't wanna, I won't paraphrase it. Let me read it to you, literal. Genesis 15, 13 it says, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will, sojour- will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. We see Stephen refer to this in Acts chapter 7 as well. The fact that God said to Abram, hey, this is coming. And now for those of us who've been in the study in an ongoing way, we heard God say that. Now we're beginning to see the wheels sort of turning toward the end that God told Abram a long time ago would be accomplished, that the people would be enslaved in Egypt. These are the first steps toward that story coming to fulfillment, which, which then we see continued in the book of Exodus. But here we're just beginning to see that happen, and it happens with the story of Joseph. What we don't see in the story of Joseph are like uh, crazy, miraculous intervention things. We don't see God, you know, pick up the people of Israel and move them uh, supernaturally to Egypt. We see God using everyday occurrences and even the brokenness of all of these people to accomplish his sovereign purpose, right? So here's one of the things I want you to see as we dive into the story of Joseph over the next couple of weeks. Especially today in chapter 37, we essentially see four different parties interacting. And I want you to see them as we begin because I want you to watch the interaction as it go. We see the interactions of Jacob, right? Sort of the patriarch here. We see the interactions of Joseph, who's sort of the center of attention. We see the interactions of Joseph's brothers, who are frustrated, and we understand why. And then we also see that there's a fourth party in the story, which is God. Even though God isn't specifically mentioned in this particular chapter, we do see him moving, and we do see him working. And and that's important. Those four parties will be important to our understanding of the text as we look at it together. And the story sort of begins with one of those parties. It begins with uh, a favorite son who's also something of a tattletale. Let's read these first few verses together. It says in uh, Genesis 37, 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. 
And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, just so you know, uh, they probably deserve to have a bad report brought about them, just like all of us at different times in our lives deserve to have bad reports brought if we're doing bad things, which we all do, right? We're not, we're not saying here that Joseph's brothers were innocent, but what I do want you to know is that the word that's used for report in Genesis 37 here, when it says that Joseph brought a bad report, the, the concept there, that report is almost always in the Old Testament, both in Proverbs and in Jeremiah and Ezekiel in Psalms. That word report is almost always used in a negative sense. In fact, it's the same word that's used uh, when, the, when the spies come back in Numbers 12 and they give a bad report about the promised land that they've gone into. So this isn't just that that Joseph is giving a report, it's that Joseph is reporting something negative. And the sense of that term in almost every context in where it's used is that it's also, it also has the kind of uh, the sense of slander or of untruth. So it isn't just that Joseph is bringing a negative report of true things, but that in some ways the sense of what Joseph is doing is he's inflating the wrongdoing, which is provocative to his brothers, right? We're going to see early in the story as we look at these four parties and the way they interact, that on Joseph's part, he's not innocent here, right? That in some ways, Joseph is arrogant. In so, some ways, Joseph is naive. In some ways, Joseph is a bit of a tattletale. He's a bit of a troublemaker. And I think we can identify with that because if you've got siblings, how many of you in the room uh, have like a bratty sibling? You got a bratty sibling? Raise your hand. I want to see it. You got a bratty sibling. Okay. How many of you, your bratty siblings sitting in the room? Be careful, right? Yeah, they here with you, sitting next to you down the way. Let me ask you this. How many of you are the bratty sibling? Yeah, all right, all right. That worked for both of them just now. You see that they exchanged, right? I think all of us have had moments where we've been around a bratty sibling. Even if you're an only child, it might be a close friend or whatever. We all know what the bratty sibling is like. I remember in my family, my kids get along great and they love each other well. But even when my kids were little, you know, we'd be sitting in the car and, you know, Lily's like two years old. She can barely speak English. She's sitting in the back seat of the car, you know, tiny little thing. And my older boys, one of them would be like, Dad, it's really hot in the car. Can we get the air conditioner turned on in the back? And they'd be like, yeah, no problem. And then Hank would go, yeah, Dad, it's really hot. Can we get the air conditioner turned on? And then really quiet, this tiny little squeak of a voice in the back of the car would go, I'm cold, right? Just to be contrarian, right? Just to cause trouble. And then they'd start to fight. Same thing still happens today. If I go, hey, why don't we get Papa John's pizza? I'll have like two of my four kids that'll be like, we love Papa John's. And two of them, they're like, Papa John's is lame. Let's get Domino's or whatever. To the point where I usually just end up going, "Uh, make quesadillas, I'm going to go to bed, right? There's this sibling rivalry that's natural in some ways, but what we're seeing here is something beyond that. This is beyond a bratty sibling, We see that there's a complicated relationship because in one part, because of Joseph's own brokenness at this stage in his story. But that's not the only complicated piece. Let's keep reading. It says that he brought a bad report to their father in verse 2. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors, right? What we see here is the continuation of generational favoritism. If you've been a part of the study with us for a long time, you'll remember that Isaac, Jacob's father, had a favorite child. And his favorite child was not Jacob, it was Esau. You'll also remember that Rebekah, Jacob's mother, had a favorite child. And it wasn't Esau, it was Jacob. You'll remember that when Jacob gets married and he has multiple wives, he has a favorite wife. It's no surprise that he's got favorite children here, right? But that doesn't make it right. So we see these four parties interacting. We see the brokenness of Joseph combining with the brokenness of Jacob. 
Jacob's favoritism, Jacob's pride, Jacob's preferential treatment, right? It says here that he makes a robe for his son. And what that does, that brokenness in Jacob provokes the brothers, the other brothers, to a brokenness of their own. It says in verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So what we see here is in these three human parties, we see the brokenness of Joseph, who's a little spoiled and a little bit of a tattletale, bringing a negative and possibly untrue report. His brothers and their brokenness because of their jealousy and their envy, because they've lived a life where they've been set aside. And we see the brokenness of their patriarch, Jacob, who in his favoritism and preferential treatment only inflames the drama, right? We need to think about the way those three parties interact because the reality is we also live in a world where we're constantly dealing with those dynamics. Our own brokenness brought into conflict with the brokenness of people who love us and people who hate us. Our own brokenness brought into a collaboration with the brokenness of those who like us and want to bless us and maybe make us robes and those who plot murder against us, right? The whole world is broken. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when the brokenness of we ourselves combines with the brokenness of those who like us and the brokenness of those who hate us, it creates a bit of a chemical combustion, right? There is drama that comes as a result. And this story is no different than what we see in our own lives. The brokenness that stirs up these dramatic stories. The story starts with a favorite son who tattles on his brothers And then it continues, look at verse 5, it continues with God, the fourth party in this story, making a contribution. Look at this. It says in verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hey, uh, hear this dream that I've dreamed. And behold, uh, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. Behold, your sheaves gathered around it. And bowed down to my sheaf, right? What do you guys think that means? I don't know know if they're like sitting at breakfast, right? They're all having their cereal or whatever. And he's like, I had this dream where your sheaves all bowed down to my sheaves. Anybody got an interpretation, right? Now, I don't know if he's just like a knucklehead, if he's naive, if he's ignorant. But it has already told us that his brothers were jealous of him and that they hated him because of the favoritism that Jacob brought to the table. Now he gets this dream. And by the way, he's not responsible for the dream. That's something God gave to him. For the record, the dream is true. The dream will be fulfilled. By the time we get to the end of the story in Genesis 50, everything he dreams will have been accomplished. Jacob's not responsible for the dream any more than Jacob is, or excuse me, Joseph is not responsible for the dream any more than Joseph is responsible for the coat of many colors. Those are things that his father did because of his father's affection. Those are things that God did because God is showing in his providence the way things will go. God gives him the dream. Jacob gives him the robe. Joseph is not responsible for the fact that he's received these things, the dream and the favoritism. He's not responsible for that. What he is responsible for is his response to those gifts, his response to those blessings. The reality is in our own lives, there are going to be times when the broken people who like us are going to do things for us, are going to give things to us, or they're going to bless us in different ways. And when they do, we're not responsible for what they've given. We're responsible for our response. Does it provoke in us arrogance or pride? Does it provoke in us condescension? Does it provoke in us judgmentalism when those who like us show us favor? We're not responsible for what they do. We're responsible for how we respond to it. 
Likewise, when God blesses us or when God gives us a sense of where he's leading us or when God provides blessings for us, it's God who's done that. He's the catalyst for those things. We're not responsible for what he's given us, but we are responsible for the arrogance that sometimes can be produced or the way in which we uh, sort of flaunt that in front of other people or the way we look down at other people or the way we uh, get prideful because of that, right? God contributes these dreams and Joseph comes to the table in, in I, I'm, what I'm hoping is naivety. And he says, hey, what do you guys think this dream means? And his brothers are ticked, right? His brother said to him, verse 8, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. You would think that maybe he would learn from that, right? Like, uh, maybe I shouldn't tell my brothers my dreams, right? That doesn't seem to go over very well at the breakfast table. You'd think he'd learn from that. But he doesn't. Look at what it says in 9. Then... He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. You guys remember that dream I had a couple weeks ago that you all hated me for? Yeah, I had another one of those. Let me tell it to you. Tell me what you think it means, right? He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Twice Joseph comes and tells them these dreams, so much so that his father Jacob rebukes him and says, Hey, keep it to yourself, bro. Right? Like, what are you doing? Is there, like, and by the way, there's an agricultural dream here. There's also a celestial dream. He dreams of these 11 stars. Don't forget how many brothers Joseph has. 11, right? It's very clear what the dream means. It doesn't take a, a rocket science to figure this out. He brings these dreams and it only infuriates his family further to the point where Jacob, his father, will say, hey, what are you talking about? Why would you say this? Now, it does say that Jacob keeps it in mind. You'll remember that in Jacob's own life, God had providentially reversed the, the birth order, right? He had said that the older would be uh, serving the younger. Jacob would be served by Esau. So, as, as Jacob hears the dream, it says he keeps it in mind. I think he's looking to go, what's God doing here? What's on the move? But what we see is a, a combustion, right? What we see is the interaction of these three parties, actually these four parties. The brokenness of those who like Jacob, the brokenness of those who hate, excuse me, Joseph, the brokenness of those who hate Joseph and who like Joseph and the brokenness of Joseph himself that come together to create this volatile mix, and even the blessing of God in providing these providential dreams only makes things worse because of J Joseph's response to them. So we see it continue to escalate. In verse 12, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem in Israel. That's Jacob said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. Joseph is already known for bringing a negative and potentially untrue report. His brothers already have judged him for the way he tattles on them. His father, Jacob, in his own brokenness, is continuing to fuel that fire. Why don't you go and figure out where your brothers are and then come back and tell me how they're doing, right? Why don't you report on them to me? So, so Joseph goes, and he doesn't find them at the first place. He goes about 50 miles. He doesn't find them at the first place he looks. Somebody points him on, and so he heads on to find them at Dothan. And his brothers see him from afar. Look at verse 18. The brothers saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. I asked you at the beginning if any of you had bratty brothers and sisters, or if you were bratty brothers and sisters. I think we all kind of know that feeling. It just turned into something else. 
it just went beyond like, wow, our brother is a brat or he's a bragger or he's rubbing our noses in the fact that dad likes him best. Now the brothers have looked at him from afar and they've plotted murder against him. They, they planned and conspired against him to kill him. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes his dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Reuben thought that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. So we understand that it was a cistern, but it was an empty cistern. The reason it gives us the indication of that, number one, is that a cistern was deep enough that it would hold a lot of water. This one's empty, so it would have been a painful fall to the bottom and he wouldn't have been able to climb out. They beat him, they strip him, they throw him into a hole. And we know from later testimony that Joseph began to cry out, that he began to beg them, right? It says in Genesis 42, and you don't have to turn there, we'll get there eventually. But in Genesis 42, later when the brothers are confronted with Joseph's rule in Egypt, they look at each other and they remember this day. In Genesis 42, 21 They say to one another, in truth, we're guilty concerning Joseph in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Years later, they will look and they will remember this moment and they'll remember moments where Joseph was begging for his life. They beat him and they strip him and they throw him into a hole. Reuben intervenes and what it tells us is that Reuben had a plan to come and rescue Joseph from the hole later, which doesn't work out. But I want you just to imagine the way this thing has escalated. I want you to imagine how Joseph is feeling at the bottom of the hole. Now, interestingly, what happens is Judah kind of jumps in here. And uh, we'll look at this together. It says in 25, they sat down to eat. So their brother, they beat and stripped and threw into a hole that he can't climb out of. He's crying and begging. They sit down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what prophet is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood come let us sell him to the ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother our own flesh and his brothers listened to him the midianite traders passed by and they drew joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and then they they took joseph to egypt i want you to imagine for a second joseph in the bottom of that hole He's crying out to his brothers for deliverance. He's probably crying out to God for deliverance. And then a rope drops into the cistern, right? And you can imagine the spoiled, kind of bratty, tattletale kid that he was at 17 as the rope falls down and he starts to climb up going, you guys are going to be in so much trouble when I get home and I tell dad that you beat me and you wrecked my robe and you threw me in that hole. By the way, my shoulder really hurts. When I tell dad what you've done, you guys are going to be so busted, right? And before he has an opportunity to even get all of those accusations out... They start to bind up his wrists and they bind up his ankles. There's an exchange of 20 shekels. And the next thing Joseph knows, he's thrown over the back of a camel and hauled off as a slave to Egypt. As we look at the story, uh, what we'll see next is that Joseph's brothers take his coat and they put animal blood on it and they take it back to to Jacob and they deceive him. They say, we found this coat. Is, Is this the coat that you bought for your favorite kid? And Jacob will say, yeah, that's his coat. It's interesting that Jacob is deceived in much the same way that Jacob himself was known as a deceiver. But the brothers bring this back and Jacob begins to mourn and tells us at the end that Joseph is taken to uh, Egypt and he's sold into the household of Potiphar. We'll hear that story in a couple of weeks. 
But today I want to ask you this in the time we have left. I want to ask you this. Have you ever, and maybe this is how you're feeling today. Have you ever felt like you'd sort of been punched in the face and thrown in a hole? Maybe this morning you feel like you're here, but you're not exactly here. Maybe you feel a little bit right where you sit, like you've been dropped into a cistern. And you're, you're linking back to the things that God had promised you. I wonder for Joseph when he's in the hole, if he remembers the dreams with the sun and the moon and the stars or with the sheaves of wheat bowing down. I wonder if in the bottom of that hole he thinks, did I misunderstand the dream? Because I thought I was supposed to be the boss of all my brothers and they just dropped me in a hole. I wonder if there are some of you here this morning who today or in the last month or maybe it's on its way. I wonder if you'll find yourself in a place where you feel a little beat up because of the combination of your own brokenness and the brokenness of those who like you and the brokenness of those who hate you. And that mix has come together in a volatile way that has created kind of a bumpy road for you. Some drama, some pain, some plotting, some gossip, some grief. And you find yourself in the bottom of the hole calling out to God or maybe calling out to those who've wronged you. We imagine that in the bottom of the hole, Joseph is going, hey, you guys are going to be in so much trouble. And maybe in your life you find yourself calling out, but you're not finding the deliverance that you want. You're not seeing God supernaturally fill up the cistern with water so you can swim out of it. You're not seeing God smite all your brothers with pestilence, you know, so they fall over and then you're victorious. You're not seeing God send an angel to lower down his hand and pull you out of the hole. There are moments in our lives where we feel like we've been beat up and thrown into a pit because of this combination, the combination of these three parties, the brokenness of we ourselves, the brokenness of those around us who are our friends and the brokenness of those who are plotting against us. And in those moments, it's easy to feel like all hope needs to be abandoned. I wonder if sometimes we miss that in those moments we're in the bottom of a hole and we can see the contributions of those three parties, if sometimes we're missing the fourth party. If sometimes in the midst of being able to look at the brokenness of those who like us and don't like us and our own broken contributions to the drama around us, I wonder if we're missing the providential hand of God. Because I would guess that Joseph is crying out for deliverance and what he wasn't asking for and what he wasn't hoping for was a slave caravan on its way to Egypt. And yet that is what God provided. And not only did God provide deliverance for him in the form of a slave caravan, but that slave caravan is going to take Joseph to the place where he will ultimately fulfill the purpose that God had predicted to to Abram in Genesis 15. God has a story he's writing. God has a story he's telling. And there is both an overarching macro story of redemption and reconciliation. There are all kinds of ways in which Joseph's story precedes and foretells the story of Jesus... In our lives, God is telling a macro story of oneness to brokenness to restoration, right? He's also telling a a smaller story in in the micro details of our lives. I think sometimes in the bottom of a hole, it's easy to be able to point at the brokenness of the people who put us in the hole or even the ways in which we've been complicit, maybe, in, in winding up in the bottom of the hole. But sometimes we forget that the providential hand of God is moving, that he hears our cries, that he is working in and through us. The combination of my sin and your sin and all of us living in a broken and fallen world plus God's overarching purpose can make for a very difficult, painful, confusing, complicated life. But what we see in this story as it's just beginning is that even in the midst of that pain and that grief and that complication and that suffering, there is a bigger story that God is telling and it will be fulfilled. And it's a good story, good for mankind and good for Joseph. In this moment, at the end of Genesis 37, Joseph can't see God. And maybe in the situation you find yourself in this morning, you can't see God either. 
but he's there and he's working. This story affirms that though you can't see him now, there's a day coming when you will be able to see it. We don't want to jump ahead too much, but by the time we get to Genesis 50, famously, famously at the end of his, of his story, Joseph will look at his brothers and say, hey, all the things that you meant for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. Well, that's easy in hindsight. It's easy in hindsight to look back and be able to see that God had a redemptive purpose in all the drama, Right? But in the midst of it, all we feel is pain or fear or grief or worry or doubt because we're seeing the three parties and we're forgetting the fourth. There's a fourth party in this story and there's a fourth party in your life and in my life that is working providentially for his glory and our good. And we don't want to miss it. You know, life, interacting with broken people. We talk around here about humble solidarity, right? Humble solidarity with our fellow man that produces revolutionary kindness, When we think about interactions between human beings and all of us are broken, it's a little bit like a rock tumbler. I don't know if you know how they polish rough stones, but you take a rough, unfinished stone and you basically put it in a barrel with a bunch of other rough, unfinished stones and they just bang together over time. And over time, that friction produces something beautiful. They rub off each other's rough edges and they become something lovely, but it happens through a painful and arduous process. The same is true of the journey of our life. Because we ourselves are broken, because those who love us are broken and those who hate us are broken, we're going to be on a bumpy journey, but those aren't the only three parties. So for us this morning, as we look at Genesis 37, as I was prepping and studying, there were a couple of things that came to mind I want to share with you, reminders for me out of this story. The first one is, because I live in a broken world and I myself am broken, I should anticipate drama, right? I should anticipate friction. I think it's funny how surprised we are sometimes at the drama that occurs in our lives, right? We expect that in following Jesus, it's all going to be sunshine and rainbows. There's going to be doves landing on our shoulders and people feeding us grapes or whatever. It's a very euphoric kind of picture people paint. But Jesus himself says that it will be hard to follow him, that people will hate you because of following him. He invites us to take up our cross, which is a brutal invitation. So let's not you and I be surprised by the friction of the rock tumbler because we live in a broken world. We're not alone in it. But let's anticipate that there will be some drama because of our fallenness and the fallenness of others. Not only that, let's take the opportunity to reveal Christ in our responses. I said earlier that Joseph isn't responsible for his coat, right? He didn't ask for that. Joseph isn't responsible for his dreams. He didn't ask for those. Those were things that were given to him by by people who love him. What he's responsible for is what he did with those things. What he did with the blessing of God. What he did with the blessing of his father, right? Many times in our lives, we get in the midst of the friction and we get in the midst of the drama. We're on the bumpy road. We're bound hand and foot and thrown over the back of a camel. And we don't have the ability to control the camel or the bindings or the hearts of our brothers or the hearts of our father. The only thing we can control is our heart on the back of the camel. You know what I'm saying? My opportunity to reveal Christ bound and tied to the back of a donkey. So I want to anticipate drama because it gives me and affords me the opportunity to reveal Christ in my responses. Not only that, I want to offer grace to other people. I want to offer grace to other people. Many times when I feel like I'm at the bottom of a hole, I feel like I'm the righteous one and everybody else is unrighteous. It just isn't true, right? Every time I find myself strapped to the back of a camel or in the bottom of the hole, I should remember that the brokenness that has been uh, acted against me is very similar and exactly the same as my brokenness against others. I am the bratty brother, just like I have a bratty brother. Does that make sense? I know him and I am him. And that provokes in me the extension of grace to those who demonstrate brokenness. Why? Because I'm going to demonstrate brokenness eventually too. Just spend a little bit of time with me. 
So we demonstrate grace to other people. And then last, I was reminded that I can hope in God's sovereignty in that I am being transformed on the path. First Peter chapter two, verse 21 says this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There are many things in the story of Joseph that uh, collaborate with the story of Jesus. He's a great foreshadowing of the story of Jesus. The one difference with Jesus is that Jesus is not broken, right? Unlike you and I, he is perfect. So what it says in this text is that Jesus, even though he was reviled, he didn't deserve that. He didn't earn it, right? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He he trusted his life to God, who's just and good. Even though you and I are imperfect, even though you and I are broken, we've been called to follow the example of Christ. And in the moments where we're tempted to lean into our own brokenness, we have the opportunity to put the words and the heart of Jesus on, which are to say, hey, in the midst of the brokenness of the hole I find myself in, I'm going to trust my fate to God, who's telling a bigger picture than just this moment. Philippians chapter 1, which was written from jail, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We talk in this church a lot about having a confident expectation. A confident expectation in the goodness and the providence of God that does what? It produces a radiant peace. A peace that radiates out. Why? Because the the God who began this story, who gave me life and breath, who gave you life and breath, he will finish the story. And the end of the story is his glory and my good. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 talks about a beginning, and it talks about an end, and it also talks about a middle. Listen to this. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That happened. We celebrated it last week. Jesus rose from the dead, and we have living hope. He's, he's risen us, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's an end, right? Which is the, all of this stuff granted and revealed. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, here's the now, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you thought about this, but the, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ have accomplished our redemption and our adoption, right? And there is a day in which all of this will be fulfilled. Everything will be perfected. We will be one holy in Christ again. But in this intervening time, there's some pain. There's some grief, there's some drama, there's some cisterns that should have water and for some reason don't, that we've been dropped into. And what it says is that this pain and this drama that's come has been allowed by God as a test. So the tested genuineness of our faith will result. For what it's worth, who reads the results of that test? God never needs to test us so that he can learn something about us. God knows everything, right? So there's never a test in your life. If you're put into a cistern, for instance, that's never God going, I wonder what he's going to do. I wonder what his response will be. I wonder if he has faith. God knows your heart. He knows my heart. No, the tested genuineness of our faith is not test results that God reads. It's test results for us to read. It's for you and I to understand how our faith is growing. Let me finish with this idea. 
Joseph is not the man at the beginning of the story that he is at the end of the story. At the beginning of the story, he's a tattletale. He's a little bit of a brat. He doesn't have the discernment to know. You don't tell a dream story like that at the breakfast table. He's kind of a bratty brother at the beginning of the story. That's not who he is at the end of the story. You know who he is at the end of the story? He's gracious and peace-loving. He's wise and discerning. He's a great steward. He is no longer naive. He is not the man at the end of the story that he is at the beginning. How, how did he become the man that he is at the end? The wise, gracious, peaceable leader? You know how he became that man? Strapped to the back of a camel. Falsely accused and thrown in prison. Forgotten about. Beat up by his brothers. Stripped. In the midst of the rock tumbler of the brokenness of his father. And the brokenness of his brothers. And the brokenness of himself. And the brokenness of all those in the world around him. God was refining him into a man he was not at the beginning of the story. Let me tell you why that matters. You and I aren't the people God needs us to be next year. And we're not the people that God needs us to be in five years. Or in ten years. Or in twenty years. We are being made into those people. Conformed to the image of Christ. And the process of becoming like Jesus. Happens in a rock tumbler. It happens in the bottom of a pit, sometimes strapped to the back of a camel, sometimes stuck in an Egyptian jail and forgotten about. But the great news is that due to the providence of God, that fourth party in these interactions, we are becoming more like Christ. Uh, I heard a story, and this really is the last thing I'll say. Uh, In my study this week, I heard it from a commentator, a great story. We have a, a little pool. I'll adapt it for my house. In my backyard, I have a little pool and it's like long and rectangular and it never gets more than like five and a half feet deep. It's not a diving pool. It's more just like a splash pool, whatever. And when you are a kid or when you have little kids, there's a thing with dads where like we take our kids into the water, right? And the kids are a little nervous and I'm holding, before they know how to swim, I'm holding my child in my arms. And then what do you do? You get your kid and they start to settle down and you go, okay, now we're going to go a little bit deeper. And you start to walk into the deep end, right? You get a little deeper and a little deeper. And the, the deeper you get, the more agitated and nervous the kids get, right? They get more worried and more squirrely. Maybe they start to cry. Maybe they start to worry because you're getting into deeper and deeper water. The reality is though, that while it is deeper and while it feels deeper and produces more anxiety in the heart of the child, the father's feet never stop touching the ground. When I take my children into the deep into my pool, there is no point in which I am unstable or out of control or there's any threat that we will go under because there is no deep end in my pool that's deep enough that I can protect me and my kid. The reality is that in our lives, God has us. And there are moments where he goes, we're going to go a little bit deeper. We're going to go a little bit deeper. And you know what we start to do? (laughs) What's happening? What's going on? Why am I in the bottom of this hole? But his feet are never off the ground. He's never in over his head. We have the ability, yes, to anticipate the drama, to extend grace to other people, but also to place our hope in that fourth party, a sovereign God who is moving us on our trajectory to become the women and men that he needs us to be tomorrow and next year and in 10 years. And and what we have to do is trust in his ability to take us the places that he wants us to go. Joseph isn't the guy at the beginning of the story that he is at the end. And it's thanks to the camel and the hole in the ground because God uses those things to transform him in the long run. He'll use those same things in our lives as well. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help us to wrap our arms around your neck and not be worried about deep water. I pray that we would somehow have the opportunity this morning through the work of your Holy Spirit that you'd give us a glimpse through the depths to your feet planted firmly on the ground. 
that we would recognize that the combination of my brokenness with the brokenness of those who like me and those who don't can create a rocky road, a difficult path, a, a, a pathway and a journey with some grief and some sorrow and some confusion and some heartache. But that those three parties are not the only contributing factor and are not the, the most important contributing factor. That there is a fourth party, you, Lord God, the sovereign king, who's taking us on a journey and we can trust you to refine us in the process. Give us peace in knowing that we are yours and that you are with us always. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.